needs a little bit of introduction before we read. The title is The Anguish of My Heart, which comes from the text this morning as Paul is talking about the, the anguish of his heart. Um, so you have to sort of, before we go into this, ask yourself, um, for what is your heart anguishing? Do you ever have a, an anguish of the heart? For Paul, you'll see as we read, is talking about a continual anguish in his heart. So do you have a continual anguish in your heart? What is this anguish that maybe you have? Um, and so when we see what Paul has to say here, we need to ask ourselves, do we also with Paul have this same anguish? Does our heart beat with his as it beats with Christ as the Holy Spirit comes into our lives? This should be a direction in which we go. So the, we're going to read beginning in uh, chapter 8, verse 31, and then go through chapter 9, verse Five, the word of the Lord. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are all being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor anything present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites. To them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen and amen. So he comes off of, and I wanted to read the verse 31, the end of 8, chapter 8, this great you know, crescendo of, of assurance of salvation that um, nothing can separate us from the love of of God that is in Christ Jesus. And now in chapter it's really 9 through 11, he kind of answers the question, well, what about the Jews? Um, because this would be the question. Paul finds himself as being called an apostle to the Gentiles. So you have Jews and Gentiles. And so it, word has sort of seems to get around that Paul is opposed to the Jewish people. And he's like, not a, I'm a Jew. Christ is a Jew. The, the, the apostles are Jews. This is, this is not true. And then he says this because he's going to talk about uh, what about these promises of God? We just say God will never forsake you. Well, what about the Jews? Were they forsaken? 
They had all these things. They had the promises, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, all these things, the patriarchs. Why are they not coming to Christ? And I, you know, I suggest, again, read 9 through 11, memorize it. But in 9 through 11, as we go through these chapters, you're going to see, he's going to say, the word of God hasn't failed. And there's a remnant. He hasn't abandoned his people. Indeed, we're going to see more. It's his, his people who abandoned him. But the question has to be, then, what about us in Christ? He's like, well, don't abandon him. You too can be broken off by faith. You're united to him by faith. So make sure you cling to him by faith. This is the thing. And what we just learned in chapter 8 is he clings to us by faith. Because as New Testament believers, as those who are in the church, we are the ones who are united to him by Christ, are the remnant. And he wants us to see that those in the Old Testament church as well were not united to Christ simply because they were uh, received all these promises and received the signs of the covenant, but they had to have faith. They had to have their hearts circumcised. As we witnessed baptism um, last week, it symbolizes the work of the Holy Spirit through faith. But without faith, it doesn't mean nothing. And this is what Paul is saying. It's like, you can't say, well, you just baptized you know, an infant or you just baptized a person who professed faith, but do they actually possess faith? And there are some people who, some traditions that go so far as, um, I think it may have even been um, Constantine who waited till the very end of his life to be baptized lest he should sin after he was baptized. And then it'd be for no good. Um, and then there are others who wait until a person shows enough fruit. But that's not, there is evidence of the work of the Holy Spirit. But... The work of the Holy Spirit is what happens as we're given the faith. We're given faith. We're given the righteousness of Christ. But it must be held by faith. And one of the ways that we're held into this faith is by the love of God is by sitting under His Word, reading His Word, praying His Word, being in a worship service full of believers who are encouraging one another all the more as we see they approaching and being warned. Don't abandon it. He is your only hope. This is Him. So this is the way the Holy Spirit Himself keeps us in is by calling us to stay in. And then Paul just got through saying he'll never leave and abandon you. So those of the Jewish nation during his time who are not turning to him are those who, as you're going to say, they're not of the elect. All of Israel is not of the elect. I don't want to get into the weeds yet, but this is where we're going through 9 through 11. The sovereignty of God in salvation. Abraham received the promises. And it was accounted to him, his faith, he believed the promises, and his faith was accounted to him as righteousness. So it's not just the receiving of the promise, it's the belief in the promise that you will do what you say. Yes, amen, and I believe. So Paul will go on to explain all of these things. And most of the Jews, we had to remember in Paul's day, hated his message that Jesus was the promised Messiah. That's what the word Christ is a translation into Greek from the Hebrew Mashiach, the Messiah, the anointed one to come, the king to come. Um, and there he is. Here's your king, the one prophesied, the one who's bringing in the, the new covenant, who himself is this promised new covenant. All the promises of God in the Old Testament being yes, amen, in Christ Jesus. So as he's preaching this to the Jews who had all these promises, um, he also says that you know, the man whom they had crucified, he lives and is at the right hand of God. 
the final sacrifice for all sin, the true high priest, the salvation is found in nowhere else. And as he brought this message to them, they rejected him, they rejected Christ. You know, he came to his own, his own did not know him. The light has come into the world, but the people love the darkness rather than the light. And here comes Paul bearing that same light. They're not going to treat him differently. Here you go, bearing that same light. Why are they going to treat you any differently? But they hated Paul to the point of beating him, casting him out, stoning him, attempting to kill him, even killing him, and being miraculously brought back to life himself. But he died again, whereas Christ was raised in a resurrected, glorified body and lives forever. And Paul, with the rest of the saints who have gone before, await this rejoining of our glorified bodies to our souls. So we look forward to this time to be absent in the body is to be present with the Lord. <clears throat> so who would blame Paul for hating them back? Terrible. You ever tried to do something nice for somebody and they just kind of spit in your face? I ain't just trying to do something nice for them. I mean, that's irritating. <laughs> you know? But they go out of your way and do something really magnificent for somebody <clears throat> and they could care less. <clears throat> <clears throat> excuse me, they could care less and it just doesn't matter and then they kind of, you know, it is just irritating. But to do something, to bring, say, this is what you need and then they try to kill you consistently. I mean, everywhere you go, you do this and this is what's happening from this group of people. I mean, who would blame you or Paul for saying, you know what? I have no use for them. Cut them off. Throw them in hell. Let's do something. But he doesn't say that. He says in verse 9, is why he says it. He says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. He's talking about what he's about to say. And I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. So he's calling down his own conscience, which our consciences are that little thing that tells you what's right and wrong. And we know that our consciences, our hearts are, are sinful and, and um, uh, not to be trusted and believed. But in Christ, as the Holy Spirit comes into our lives, we're given a good conscience. We're given a purified conscience that still struggles with the flesh and doesn't quite work perfectly. But Paul, as he's speaking and calling upon the Holy Spirit and his sanctified conscience, and says, I'm not lying. I'm telling the truth that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. Because he calls... We are his brothers and sisters in Christ. But according to the flesh, because Paul was a Jew, and he's saying, I don't hate them. I love them. I love them so much that I actually have this great sorrow and unceasing anguish. Now, this word for anguish um, in the Greek, it means a consuming grief, consuming pain and sorrow and it's unceasing. The other time this word is used for a, a woman who is in the, the pains, the sorrows, the trials of childbirth. It's like this deep, you know, thing. He's like, I feel this pain in my heart for these, my people, who are rejecting me and are rejecting Christ. Because he knows. It's not just that he's trying to sell them a car. It's not that he's just trying to get them to figure out how air conditioning works and how they get purified water. He's telling them, your Savior has come. This is the difference between life forever after in heaven, in great joy, in every tear, white from every eye, or unceasing anguish in hell. 
so that the sorrow I feel slightly in my heart does not compare to the sorrow you will feel, the pain you anguish you will feel in the fires of hell. I've been lying at a fireplace, and it'll burn on my finger. I just, it's real hot in the fireplace. My forehead is like, okay, this, is, this, this thing is hot. And you can't help, hopefully, as believers, whenever we're messing with a fire, you have to think about hell. It's like, can it really be like this? That for a non-believer to be cast into hell? I mean, really? I mean, it's like, it, it hurts just a little bit. You ever get a real burn, it hurts a great deal. Imagine just like, that's what it is forever. And as R.C. Sproul has pointed out, you know, it's just an analogy. It's just a sign. But whatever it is, is worse. It's worse. It's just something God can give us to say, it's like this. It's like this. And then if we don't get that, or if we could care less that that's what's happening to people, then there's our problem. Because we all need to see two things here. One, the great love that Paul had for his people, even though they rejected Christ and hated him. But secondly, the great love that we should have for those who do not know or have rejected Christ and who may even hate us. We should have this anguish in our hearts. <clears throat> and I, I quote this song a lot. This is the best Line in it. It's a Jars of Clay song. He's love Jars of Clay when it first came out. It's a love song for a savior is the name of it. It has this line that says, sitting silent wearing Sunday best. The sermon echoes through the walls. A great salvation through it calls to the people who stare into nowhere and can't feel the chains on their souls. That's what you're up against. That's what it's like to preach. Grateful I get to preach to a group of people that I think know the Lord. But yeah, there are times <laughs> when, you know, it's you don't know. People aren't listening. People aren't paying attention. People don't care. Uh, you go to a large enough group, you go to, you know, the high school, somewhere like that, and you preach, you do an FCA thing or something because they're there to get out of class. And it's just like, you know. But then we have to ask ourselves, do we feel the chains? So do we know how we've been set free? Do we care about people in this condition? Does it really grieve us? And to the point to which it grieves Paul, I, no, no, not this much. I don't get that that much. It's not good that we don't. But Paul, being the you know, apostle to the Gentiles and, and, and being in the immediate presence of God, just being able to speak with Jesus and seeing all the things that he saw, to be so enraptured by the truth of these things, so that if we could know the truth more and more, then we too would feel this way. So our problem is not that we just don't love people. Our problem is that we don't love the Lord our God enough, nor do we have enough faith to know that these things are actually true and these things will happen. Imagine how much different your life would be if you knew absolutely for sure, beyond shadow of doubt, not at all. You know you're going to heaven. You've already seen it. You've already been there. You've already, it's just like, this is coming. It, just, it would absolutely radically change your life. So our faith should be somewhere along that line of absolute assuredness. And the closer we are to that absolute assuredness, the more our lives shine like Christ. And that also means we're also absolutely assured of what happens to non-believers. And so that our lives are radically changed in our view of the ones who are lost. There's a song that also goes, Did Christ over sinners weep? And shall our cheeks be dry? As he looked over Jerusalem, 
He said, how often I've longed to have you under my wings, but you were not willing. And then Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, feels deep anguish over the lost, even though who will continue in their hatred of God in Christ. So we need to go two places in the Old Testament to see um, this inward feeling of God and of, of godly men who would understand what's at stake. And so the first place, and then keep your place here in uh, Romans as well, but the first place is um, Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 33. It's in Old Testament. The prophets are all in the same place. You get your major, larger prophets first. And Ezekiel comes in there after Isaiah and Jeremiah. Ezekiel chapter 33. I'm going to read verses 10 and 11. Thank you, Robert. <clears throat> Ezekiel chapter 33, verses 10 through 11. And so <clears throat> this is God speaking to, to Ezekiel and telling him, this is what you, you say to the people, and you, son of man, say to the house of Israel, Thus have you said, so Israel has said this, Surely our transgressions and our sins are upon us, and we rot away because of them. How then can we live? Say to them, As I live, declares Yahweh Elohim, Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil way, for why will you die, O house of Israel? And it's an it's a interesting glimpse into the heart of God where he says, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Because I think at times we might say, you know what, I might take some pleasure in the death of the wicked. They're wicked enough and I'm kind of, you know, Rich Mullins has this little cute little saying he had, which was, um, you know, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. He said, but sometimes I know I just want to be about the Lord's business. You, know, you just want to exact some of that vengeance upon other people. And so, you know, the, the answer back to God is, oh, you, you. So is that what you want? Would you like for me to exact vengeance on you? Do you want to be treated with justice too? Why are you so quick to have somebody else have vengeance upon them when our hearts should be breaking because we know you have set their feet on slippery places? And God himself, through the Holy Spirit, speaking to the prophet Ezekiel, who is the mouthpiece of God from God to the people, says, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. He's not up there like, sorry, what comes into my mind, images. is from a Star Wars, the, the, uh, uh, the, the evil, um, oh man, what's the evil guy? He's an emperor. He's like, you know, Luke is in there and he's got Luke in his, you know, force clutches. And he's like, and he's in, Luke, ah, mother, you know, and it's like, and, and he just has a look on his face. He's just enjoying it. He's just, I don't know if you've ever seen Star Wars or if you've heard of it. But, you know, he's got this scene. The emperor's just like torturing. Luke is just the hero. He's just down there. He's, ah! And he's, ah, ah! And he's just loving it. It's like, that's not God the Father exacting vengeance on the sinners. At all. At all. I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. He is not doing that. So why does he punish the wicked? 9 through 11, we'll see this as well. But it's to the glory of his holiness and justice. There are some vessels who have been 
um, created as vessels of mercy and grace, and some who have been created for vessels of wrath to demonstrate the greatness of his holiness and the evilness of, of sin. God in his ultimate person, in his ultimate you know, being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth, I will punish the wicked. But he takes no pleasure in it. Neither should we. We should not be in any way sharing the gospel with the world and saying, you know, ha ha, God's going to get you. Yeah, too bad for you. Mm. It's with weeping that, that we do these things. The second place is um, Exodus chapter 32. So Genesis, second book of the Old Testament, Exodus chapter 32. This is after the, the golden calf incident where Moses is on the top of the mountain, receiving from the very finger of God the, the law, the Ten Commandments being carved into stone, and <clears throat> comes down, and they, they've broken them all already. And they have the, the golden calf. Aaron is, you know, he says, you know, they ask him, you know, where did this come from? He said, we threw in this gold, and this calf popped out. It's like, yeah, pop out. Man, you, <laughs> you're trying to worship like you did in Egypt. You're... you're, you're You've sinned a great sin. Now you deserve desire to be destroyed, cut off, and lost. So once again, proving what Adam did in the garden um, is nothing compared to we, what we do when we're left to our own devices. So Exodus thirty-two thirty, <coughs> Moses is going to respond to God. The next day, um, Moses said to the people, "You've sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to Yahweh. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin." It's just beautiful. Look what he's doing. Maybe I can make atonement for your sin. What, what's he going to do? He didn't know. I mean, maybe there's something I can do. I can make atonement. Because this is the Holy Spirit speaking through him. The, God the Son, the desire is like, there will be atonement for the sin. That's the only thing that can be, that's possible for the forgiveness of sins, atonement. That something has to happen to set things right between the sinner and between the holy God. And somebody has to step in and somebody has to do something. And Moses says, here I am, send me. That means this is what Paul is saying. Guys, if I could be cut off. And what he says is, be careful with this with Paul. He's not saying, please send me to hell instead of them. He's not saying, I'd rather be in hell without you. He's not saying, I love the people more than I love you. What he's saying was, if you look in Romans 8, if, if, if it could be, if it were at all possible. He's just saying, I would be cut off. I would be damned for them. This is just my heart. I want to be of Christ. I know only Christ can do this. But in his heart, he's like, I would give it all for their salvation. And then Moses here, he says, <clears throat> so Moses returned to the Lord and said, alas, this people have sinned a great sin. They've made for themselves gods of gold. But now if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. This is what he's doing. He's saying, take me instead of them. Why? Because I love you. Because the people are going to look and see that you can't get them in. And these people don't know what they've done. He's, Moses is so, in, he is so connected to his people that he feels as if it's him himself who's being condemned. And he would do something to help them. But the Lord says to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. 
But now go lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. And then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made the calf the one that Aaron made. But even now the grace of God, then they continue. And they continue in order that Christ might come and be a savior for the world. That all the nations might come to him. So this is Paul's heart, is to intercede for the people. So when Paul goes even further, he's asking you know, it could be a curse, and the word is anathema in Greek, and it's just this word, it's the harem in the Old Testament, the ban. When you, t- you went into a, an area, and you defeated the people, and then everything there is supposed to be uh, devoted to the Lord for destruction. You don't get anything out. You don't take anything with you. It's gone. It's all put under the ban. He said, let that be me. Let me be cut off for their sake. If it were possible, I would do that. But it's only the sin bearer. And Paul knows this. It's only Jesus Christ is the only way of salvation. So as we go back to Romans. And if you look what he says in, in the first chapter, Romans 1.16. He's constantly thinking of them. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first. The gospel's power for the Jew to be saved. That's it. There don't dispensationalism like there's other ways. Or do, if, if, if the entire nation of Israel turns to God, it will be they turn to Jesus Christ in the same way that anybody does today. Through faith in Jesus Christ. The gospel. Understanding, hearing, and turning to the gospel. So then in, back in Romans chapter 9. Verses 4 and 5. <clears throat> he says they are Israelites. That's a strange word to use. Israelites. Because the word Israel brings us back to uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob is renamed Israel, he who wrestles with God because the angels wrestle with him and he would not let go of God until he would not let go of the angel of the Lord until he had a blessing from him. And so they're wrestling for this blessing and he ends up being the, the patriarch of, of the, the nations. He, Israel is what it's like. So this is bringing back, as he's calling them the Israelites, the covenant people of God. And to them belong the adoption as they were called God's son in places, the glory, they had the Shekinah glory, they were able to talk about all these things, the covenants, you know, all the way from um, you know, the, the, the David's covenant, Moses' covenant, the one with Noah, all of these people, Abraham, they have the covenants, the giving of the law, you know, the Torah, the, the worship, and the word is latreia, it, does, it means the, uh, the service of worship, all the sacrificial systems, all the stuff in the Old Testament, and the promises, this is all given to them. To them belong the patriarchs. These are, you know, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. These are the, these are the patriarchs. Now, he doesn't say, and he says, and from the race, according to the flesh, is the Christ. He does not say, and he belongs to them. So notice in verse 4, they are the Israelites, and to them belong these things. And then in verse 5, to them belong the patriarchs, but from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who we know he's speaking of Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah. And he says something quite 
amazing here. Who is God overall? Blessed forever. Amen. Amen is in Greek. Amen. It means truth. It comes from a word that means truth. Emmet. And it means this is true. We give our amen to it. Somebody shouts amen. They're saying, yes, that's right. That's true. So when he says amen, he's like, yes, this is a crescendo. This is, believe this. This is true. So you might say, well, why does anybody have any kind of problem with Jesus being God when it's so clear right here in our, our English translations? And it's because like most things, anytime Christ is elevated to such a position, there are people who can say, well, you know, you can look at that in this way. You can twist the language. Or what he's doing is actually, he's not saying Jesus is God. He's saying God is all, and we're blessing God things. But it's really very clear in the original language and in the context of the whole thing that this indeed he is saying, as he said in other places, fairly clearly in different areas, Christ is the God. Christ is God who is over all. He doesn't belong to them. He's over them. Before um, David was, I am. Before Abraham was, I am, he says. I'm before even him. And then later in 1017, Paul writes that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. And he's praised in this chapter that they would be saved. And he's convinced that there's going to be a, a conversion of the Jews, and there's debate. Does that mean like every, every Jewish person living sometime in the future is going to turn to the Lord, or is there going to be a general conversion of the Jews? And he's just like, well, here's the thing. All of Israel will be saved. But he also says Israel is not equal to the elect of God, that the church is Israel. Old Testament, New Testament, Jews were grafted in, and we'll get into that. But he's not cutting off the Jews. And he's praying for their salvation. And he's saying, as I'm telling them they can't be saved unless they come to Christ, I'm not doing it out of anger. I'm not doing it out of mean-spiritedness. And we need to have this love for the Jews. We need to have, I mean, for the church to persecute Jewish people. is like, that's the most ridiculous thing I've ever, I just don't get that. I mean, it's, it's or any people, for that matter. It's like, we're, we're to be loving. But do we love the lost enough to tell them about Jesus? A.A. Hodge in Commentary on Romans, he says, if we can view unmoved the perishing condition of our fellow men or are unwilling to make sacrifices for their benefit, we are very different from Paul and from him who wept over Jerusalem and died for our good upon Mount Calvary. And we must take care of ourselves that our relationship to Christ is not just an external relationship to the church or just an external relationship to the idea of Christ. Israel has everything to point them to Christ, and without faith in their need for grace, they could not see Christ. R.C. Sproul stated, belief in God is not a logic problem, it is a moral problem. We suppress the knowledge of God in our sin. As we would say, sitting silent, wearing Sunday best, the sermon echoes through the walls. A great salvation through it calls to the people who stare in the nowhere. And can't feel the chains on their soul. But emotional pleas to the lost won't do it. Although there should be some emotional content when we're speaking of our Savior who saved us and, and holds us fast because of his great love for us. There should be some emotion as we're concerned about the, the damnation of the lost. Some of which we know closely, care for, love. 
maybe even some people in your life that you're so concerned about that are so close to you that you could almost think, I could be cut off for them. But we can sing those songs and we can say those things and we can scare people and we can enrapture people and we can just do this in such a way that we have this emotional manipulation. And emotional manipulation is called revivalism. And if you go to one of these revivals, that is these days under a tent and they're calling it a revival and they have great responses. They have people falling on their knee in tears going forward. And I love my, my, my Facebook theology, Facebook evangelism. So it's like as you're reading, um, people are seeing the, the, the thing going on at Asbury right now. And there's like the, the different camps. Is that really revival? Is that really revival? It's like, and somebody really, I like what they said. They said, we had a tent revival in our area. This is South Carolina somewhere. We had a tent revival in our area. People came from all over the place. People loved it. People came forward. People were crying. I think they're going to come back. We're going to do it again. I can't wait. It's like, I was going to say, what about your church? Where are you going to church? Is the gospel being preached in your church? Are people loving the gospel in your church? Are people singing? The, the worship of God when revival comes doesn't happen. God forbid you all start falling out on the floor and trying to sing some over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. I'm too ADD to deal with that. Listen, what you're going to do when there's a revival is you don't get sick of sitting under the preaching of the word of God. When the revival came and Paul was preaching, he preached so long that poor old Eutychus was hanging out in a window and fell out the window because he fell asleep and died. I ain't seen nobody fall out of our windows yet, although I've seen people fall asleep. and Some of that's my fault. But Paul went out, raised the boy to life. To point people to the fact that this is something new. The new covenant is real. What I'm telling you is God has come in the flesh. And all of these external things of speaking in tongues. All of these external things of raising the people from the dead. People being able to go around and just touching a cloth that Paul and the apostle had touched and being healed. Those things happen to, dead, to show these guys aren't lying. God told us that when the new happens, that when the Spirit of God comes and the, and the Christ has come and risen from the dead and the church is being made, the New Testament church of God filled by the Holy Spirit with new hearts, when that comes, you'll see these signs. And then the apostles died and the church continues. We don't need to keep having these signs. It is a sinful and rebellious generation that seeks for a sign, and no sign would be given to it except for the sign of Jonah, who for three days and three nights was in the belly of the great fish, so shall the Son of God be in the heart of the earth. And he rose again from the dead. When there is revival, you will love the preaching of the Word of God. You will love the people of God. You will hate your sin. You will indeed continue to struggle you will walk away from an emotional high and something in the world is going to nail you and the cares of this life and the concerns for riches or whatever it is is going to smack you down and smack you down hard. Somebody's going to die. Somebody's going to lie. Somebody's going to do something that's going to take it out from under you. And then where is your faith? If it's not real, it's, it's worthless. And so what we have to have is a heart for the lost. 
and it happens in church. This is, where, this is what God has said to do. The foolishness of preaching, he calls it. Of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, became man, lived a perfect life in our place, died the death that we deserve, that we might live, became sin on the cross, that we might become the righteousness of Christ in him, was raised on the third day for our justifications, that we might be declared righteous, raised into heaven, seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, and from there he shall come to judge the living and the dead. You want to see what happens when there's revival is, people start believing that. And not just quick, temporary, whatever, emotional, but people believe it in their hearts and they repent and they turn to God as they did in Acts and they say, what must we do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And then when you go out and you're preaching, your preaching will be Jesus Christ and him crucified. In this I boast. And how do you do that? Power of the Holy Spirit. He's the one that calls. He's the one that draws. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. That's what we have for people. That's what God says is what will work. But it is in the everyday, day in, day out. I got a baby. How do I raise my baby in the Lord? I got a child. I have a grandchild. I have a great-grandchild. I have a wife. I have a spouse. I have a friend. I have neighbors. How am I supposed to do this? Because you're going to blow it. You're going to blow it big. You are not everybody's standard of righteousness, and you are not a perfect Savior. All you can do is point to the one who is and say sometimes, I've blown it. I've sinned. Forgive me. And we ask for grace, and we extend grace. But this is what God has called us to. Without Christ, we are unworthy, unholy sinners, deserving nothing but the wrath of God. Our souls are chained. But when a sinner turns to Christ, the very angels in heaven rejoice. And we pray that we would too. Finally, God, help us to, to love people. Even those people who we know are wrong. People that, that hate us. People who who, do, who sin against us, Lord, help us to, while we don't want to be sinned against, and we have to be careful in our reconciliations, and we have to stay away from people who might really be trying to physically, emotionally, spiritually harm us, and we have to be careful of these things, Lord, but at the same time, we be on our knees in tears because they've been captured in the snare of Satan to do his will. Help us to pray for the lost sincerely, Help us to, to know that we were lost. And without you, we can't feel the chains on our souls. But our chains have fallen off. So help us, Lord, to walk forward and follow you. And we thank you as we come to the table. You show us what a great grace. What a great mystery. What a great sacrifice. And what a great presence you give us by your spirit. As we hear the word of God preached which compels us to sing your praises, to pray for one another, to serve one another, to encourage one another, and to proclaim the greatness of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in the world as we go forth to make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, which only happens in the church, and making disciples, that they might learn to obey all that you have commanded. Help us to do so as well. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.